Amen. The name Martin Luther is synonymous with the Protestant Reformation. Born in 1486, he died in 1546. And on October 31, 1517, many historians believe that was the day that you could trace to the inception, the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation, where the Augustinian monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 uh, criticisms, theses, against the Roman Catholic Church, and that began what we know today as the Protestant uh, renewal or the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther is known for a lot of things. One of the things he's probably arguably the best known for is that he is the founder of the denomination or the group of churches that have taken on his name the Lutheran uh, Church, Lutheran denomination. But let me tell, tell you a couple other things about him. Very fascinating. Number one, he believed that God's Word, the Bible, should be in the heart language of the people. And so he had a prodigious mind. He was a gifted linguist. And so he sat down. It's called the September Bible. In 1521, he sat down and he translated the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into the Germanic language, into the language of the German people, and it was a magnificent accomplishment on behalf of Martin Luther. Number two, he championed what you and I, most of us, just take for granted today, this awesome doctrine of soteriology which says that we are not converted or we are not saved based on our good works or based on what we do, but we are converted. We come into a faith relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, not of works. That is an awesome champion of a doctrine that he espoused. But number three, Martin Luther was a great hymn writer. Uh, He loved to take sacred scripture, and he would compose uh, words and songs based on uh, the Word of God. Ein Festeberg is his favorite. The German is a mighty fortress uh, is our God. And what he did is he sat down and he took our very text that we're going to read and study today, and he created a whole hymn based upon Psalm uh, 46. And so I'll read Psalm 46 in just a moment. I believe it was um, during this time in Luther's life where he was struggling with despondency, with depression. And it's something interesting about great men of God. You study them like Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther. These men, they had this, uh, this struggle with, uh, with depression. And um, Martin Luther was no exception. And during this time as he's writing, he's crafting these words of a mighty fortress is our God. Isn't that ironic? Talking about the mighty fortress, now awesome God is, and yet he's struggling simultaneously with the dark recesses of his soul with discouragement and depression. So his wife, Catherine, a very interesting lady, this is what she did. She walked into his study and she was dressed in funeral garments. She was decked out from head, cap to toe. She was decked out in in solid black garments. And she walks in very soberly, very somberly into his study. And and Martin Luther looks at her and says, Catherine, honey, what are you doing? Where are you going? And she says, I am going to a funeral. And he said, well, okay, well, well, who died? She said, God died. And he goes, woman, that's preposterous. What are you telling me that God died? That is absolutely impossible. God is not dead. She said, well, quit acting like it. <laughs> That's what she told him. Quit acting like it. God is good. God is alive. He is our mighty fortress. Come on, preacher, practice what you are writing. He is our refuge, our strength, 
a very present help in our time of extremity, in the vicissitudes of life, when life is overwhelming us like an awesome avalanche, that in the midst of that, we can exclaim with the psalmist, we can say with Martin Luther of old, a mighty fortress is our God. He is on his throne. He is in control no matter what. And so today, I'm going to get to read this text to you, and it is an awesome passage of Scripture. And we're studying, by the way, the Hebrew names of God. This name is Jehovah Sabaoth, and it is mentioned twice, once in verse 7 and another time in verse 11. The translation Sabah or Sabiah means a host of armies, uh, soldiers. It has the connotation of God in the cosmic heavens, and he dispatches his holy angels, his emissaries, his ambassadors who come to our aid. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is with us. A mighty fortress is our God. So let's read it, Psalm 46, and I'll read the whole chapter, the whole psalm, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, and then this little musical term, Salah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And here it is, verse 7. The Lord of hosts, literally in the Hebrew, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. So, listen to these words. This psalm just ends in this awesome crescendo. It just bubbles up into this enormous fountain of truth where the sons of Korah who write this psalm say, Be still. Be quiet. Settle down. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah. The original setting of Psalm 46 was during a time about 700 B.C. And the sons of Korah, they, they write these, uh, this, this uh, psalm based upon the historical occasion of King Sennacherib. Now, that's not a name you hear every day, but let me give you a little Assyrian uh, biography and history for just a moment. The Assyrian Empire, led by their kings, they, they ruled the world in much of the time of the Old Testament when it was written. For example, in 722 B.C., King Sennacherib, he comes to Samaria and he dev devastates, decimates uh, Israel and her capital city in the north, Samaria. And then Sennacherib, he turns his armies toward the south, toward Jerusalem, and especially to go in among Judah and destroy them, just like he did her neighbors to the north. And this is about 700 B.C. And so Hezekiah is the king. 
And he is going, oh no, God, we are in a very difficult way. We're in dire straits. And God, just like Israel to the north, we have met our fate. Oh, but God, would you rend the heavens and come down? Would you deliver us from our captor? And so this, many people, myself included, believe that the Sitzim Laban, to use some more German on you, the situation in life, the, the milieu, the context of Psalm 46 is Israel, or Judah in particular, is about to be destroyed, okay? So that's the context. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through this hymn with you today, walk through this song with you of 46. And I don't know what your situation is in life, and I don't know where you find yourself and what kind of difficulty or travail or pain or, or hurt in your marriage or some difficulty in forgiveness or maybe with your children. I was just talking to a precious lady here just a few minutes ago, just going through some very hard times with tears streaming down her face right here during Christmas, and yet her heart is just absolutely unequivocally broken up within her. And so today, what a great joy it is during this time of the year to focus on Psalm 46, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Number one is a troubling scenario or a troubling situation. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge, God is our strength. When? Well, during times of difficulty, during the calamities of life. And then he begins to explain and expound upon these upheavals, I mean these cataclysmic catastrophe upheavals. Look at it. It says, the earth is removed, the, the, the mountains carried into the heart of the sea, the waters roar, and they are troubled. The mountains shake with its swelling. You read this passage, it reminds you of the book of Revelation, does it not? I mean, having studied Revelation chapter 4 through 19, that is known as the great travail or Jacob's hour of travail, the great tribulation where I'm telling you, this place comes unglued. I'm telling you, you read about the trumpets and the bowls and the, and the judgments of God poured out on planet Earth, and it is amazing. And this is almost a prophetic word of those days that will come yet in the future before God Christ, He comes and He reigns upon this earth for a thousand years. And so here you have these troubled times, these these calamitous times, these difficult moments, and yet the psalmist says, we do not fear it. We're not worried about that because we have this resolute confidence. Our hope is in God. We will not fear. We will trust you, God. Come what may. Even if the earth is tilted off of her axis, even if Mount Everest plummets into the sea, it does not matter. We do not fear because we know Who's in control? We know God. I, I tell you guys, that is, this is a strong word of confidence, a strong word of hope in the midst of troubling scenarios or difficult situations. You know, it's, it's times like this where we as the people of faith, the people of God, during the perplexities of life, we are able to stand. And even though we, we heard and we're not being duplicitous and we're like, oh, I'm okay, everything's okay, no, but we're just able to to be strong in the, in the winds, and the howling winds of adversity. You know, that's what makes our faith so attractive. Because, you know, guys, people are going to go through tough times. And they're going to look at us and they're going to see us. Are we over there going, oh, because I'm freaking out. I'm just wringing my hands. Like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, thank you, Lord, you're in control. Hallelujah, I'm glad you're in control. Amen. Oh, goodness, what am I going to do? And that, that's, not a very good, uh, that's not a very good portrait of God. 
We ought to be like this violinist that I read about, this Itzhak Perlman guy. Uh, he is arguably the greatest modern-day violinist. He's 65 years of age. He's coming to Austin, Texas in the spring, if you're interested. At age four, he contracted polio. Today, he cannot walk around freely like most of us can. He uses a motorized scooter or uses crutches, so he knows about troubling scenarios. He was performing in New York City, Avery Fisher Hall, and packed out house, and he's performing this violin concerto, and everything's just going, everything's just going peachy, everything's going great, until one of the strings on his bow, bang, snaps off. They said it sounded like a gunshot, like this, pow. And Nick Perlman, he, he stops, he looks at his bow, and this is what he did. He closed his eyes, he had his frown on his face, and then he looked at the conductor and went, carry on. And the conductor was like, okay. And so he carried on. And in his genius prodigy mind, he recreates and plays his score with three strings instead of four. It, it was ridiculous. And when he finished, there was this, I know this is an oxymoron, but stay with me. There was this deafening silence. I mean, people were just like, and then it happened. They went ballistic. I mean, this thunderous applause. The people just erupted. They just shouted. They're like, yeah, yeah, because they saw a man who could have folded and just said, oh, take a time out, intermission. Whoa, wait, let me go get a new bow. And this is what he said about that event. He said, and I quote, Perlman said, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can make with what you have left, end of quote. It reminds me of a Chuck Swindoll quote that says, you know, life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of your attitude of how you respond to the travails and perplexities and the calamities of life. Well, we're different, aren't we? We should be. And the reason we're different, it's not because we're prettier or we're smarter or we're more educated. No, the difference, the inherent intrinsic spiritual dynamic difference is God reigns. We know him. He is sovereign. He is a very present, powerful, conspicuous help in my hour of need. Therefore, I do not fear. I don't fear cold wave of death. I don't fear the termination of my job. I don't fear for my health because I know God and God is in control of my life. That's, that's what he's getting at in this whole psalm is built on that premise. Luther says, and I quote, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a bastion, a huge defense never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Can I just interject an amen there, Mr. Luther? The ancient foe, the enemy, the devil himself doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He is armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age, the same, and he 
will win the battle. End of quote. A mighty fortress is our God. That, that's Luther's quote. That's his song. And what's so fascinating to me is he pins these words uh, as he's reading Psalm 46 and contemplating it and dealing simultaneously with his own depression, with his own difficulty, with his own angst. He writes these words, a mighty fortress. Are you, God, in the midst of my travail, in the midst of my extremities, God, in the midst of my pain, when both strings are snapping and mountains are a-falling and marriages are dissolving and churches are a-reeling and my job is being threatened, I'm telling you, I can still say, a mighty fortress is my God because he is the Lord Sabaoth. He is God. He's in, he is in control and he's going to take care of you. I'm glad you came today so you could hear that. He's in control, and he's going to take care of you. Number two is divine intervention. Let's talk about some ways God does take care of us. According to the psalmist, it says he intervenes in two primary ways. Number one, he intervenes with his presence. And number two, he intervenes with a more conspicuous demonstration of his power. Look at it, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very, somebody help me, present help, not an absentee God. Listen, guys, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the incarnation. God the Son takes upon human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and he intervenes. He interjects his deity, his divinity, his divine nature in the ugly black hole of sin sometimes here that we call earth. It's, it's hard. It's it's harsh, it's dark, it's difficult, and yet God is present. He, he, he's not one of these absentee cosmic deities who says, deists say, just handle it on your own. No, a very present help. Oh, look at verse 5. God is in the midst of it. God is in the midst of her. Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. Come on, guys. He is with you. He is alive. The God of Jacob is my refuge. And oh, look at verse 11. The Lord, don't you just love when the Bible repeats itself? I just love these Hebrew parallelism. It says it, and for the slow of mind like me, it says it again so I don't miss it. Thank you, Lord. Repeat, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our Refuge, presence. I recommend you go see Narnia, the voyage of the dawn treader. Went to see it the other night, and I don't think this will ruin the movie for you, but I'm going to tell you this little scene. It's so cool. The children are, are struggling in their hour of temptation, and it comes at them in different phases. And little Lucy, she, she's... She wants to be pretty like Susan. She wants to be prettier like her bigger, older sister. And she's struggling with that. And she's having a hard time with that. And she rips off the page of this magical book. And she's like, "Woo, this can make me pretty like my sister. And she tucks it away. And all of a sudden, you hear this voice that says, Lucy, no. And I'm like, whoa, where is Oslin? That's Oslin's voice. Well, it's Liam Neeson, I, I know. But it, it's Oslin. He goes, Lucy, no. And she's like, oh. He's nowhere around, but he was there, you see. His presence was there. I don't know if y'all have seen the interview or heard about it, but Liam Neeson says, well, 
I know C.S. Lewis meant it to be Christ, but it could be Buddha. It could be Confu- it could be whoever you, you want it to be. And there's a Hebrew word for that. I, I remember it's baloney. <laughs> it's not intended to be Buddha or Confucius. C.S. Lewis, like J.R. Tolkien, his mentor, Lord of the Rings, meant it to be Christ. And Oslin says, Lucy, no, don't do that. That is harmful for you. Don't compare yourself to your sister. I am enough. I am with you. And that presence there, that's God. He is with us, not against us. He is for us, not antagonistic toward us. He is our protagonist. He is the one who helps us and loves us and encourages us and comforts us. He is Jehovah Sabaoth. Yes, he's Lord of heaven and he's Lord of earth. And he He intervenes through presence, his omnipresence, his ubiquitous nature. He's everywhere at all times, close beside you in your hour of need. But watch this. He intervenes through his power. A very present help, verse 1 says. Look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Why? Because God shall help her. And I don't, I don't always get this. I don't always understand this. Why does he wait to the absolute very last possible moment in time to do it? I don't know why. But that's just God's modus operandi. That's his mode of operation. Sometimes, catch this. He's never early. <laughs> he's never late. He's just perfect. Okay, it's 688 B.C. Hezekiah is in the citadel, and he is in a bad way. He knows that 185,000 Assyrian troops are lying outside Jerusalem, and he knows he's doomed, and he knows what Sennacherib will do to him. I mean, he will take him, he will bind him, he may gouge his eyes out and make him a parade all the way back to Nineveh, the capital. And Hezekiah, he loves the Lord. And he cries out to God. He says, oh, God, let, let, let me read this to you. I didn't really plan on, on reading this, this prayer to you, but let, let me read this to you. I've been reading this in my quiet time. It is so awesome. I want you to hear Hezekiah as he calls out to God in this, in this prayer. After he has been taunted, in, in verse 35, they, they taunt him in 1835. He says, who among the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? Now, this is King Sennacherib. He's taunting. He's profaning the name of Jehovah. Who has delivered their countries from my hand? And who is the Lord? Should he deliver Jerusalem from me, the king of the world, Sennacherib? And so he's taunting God. He's taunting Hezekiah. And this is what Hezekiah says. Listen to these awesome words. Then Hezekiah prayed, and he said, Lord, oh, Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. And so Hezekiah, he says, Lord, we are at death's door, and God, we are calling out to you in many Theologians and historians believe that Psalm 46 is created within this milieu, within this context of Hezekiah about to be overthrown by the Assyrians. Guess what happens? You say, well, I bet you're going to tell us. Yes, I am. Let me read it to you. 2 Kings 19, verse 35, and I believe we have this on the screen. Come, 
on. And it came to pass on a certain night. He will help us just at the break of dawn. Here it comes, that the angel of the Lord went out, and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpse, and they were all dead. And God did. He intervened. He, he protected his people, and he honored his name that was being profaned. I want you to fast forward in your mind. There is coming a day, Revelation calls it the Battle of Armageddon. The armies and the empires of this world will come against the Lord and his Christ. Yes, I know it sounds like Handel's Messiah. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. There is coming a cataclysmic, apocalyptic, calamitous, like nobody's business, nobody has ever seen. And guys, can't you sense it? Doesn't it just pulsate with us spiritually today? There's an antagonism. There's an, a hatred towards Almighty God and His Christ. And they're going to gather. They're going to assemble their armies and their peoples. And they're going to thrust their fist up at Almighty God. And here's what's going to happen. Verse 6 says, the nations rage, the kingdoms were moved, and all God does is utter his voice, and the earth melts. Here's the way Revelation describes it. Revelation 19, 15. Now out of his mouth, Jesus' mouth, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is that verse. With the fierceness and the wrath of God. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Look at, look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth. He said, that, that's not mild meek. Baby lowly Jesus in Bethlehem, that, that guy grew up. He's mad. No, listen, he grew up, but he was offended, and he's hated. Go to the movies, and you'll never hear, oh, Muhammad, oh, Buddha, oh, Confucius. It's all, oh, GD, oh, Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? They say it, and they, there's, this, there's this hatred towards God and toward Christ. But look at this. He comes, and he kills them with the sword that proceeds from his mouth, of him who sat on his horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Martin Luther put it this way, okay? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Here it is. One little word shall fail him. Now, you may not take Satan and great tribulation seriously, but I'm telling you, God's word and the champions of our faith, Martin Luther, took it very seriously. And there is this calamity. 
Man, there is this evil presence, and there is this, there's this avalanche building. It is, it is growing in crescendo and momentum and movement toward the end of time. And yet we as the people of God, we don't worry, we don't fear, because you know what? We read the end of the book, and glory to God, the end says we win. Whoop, making A&M Aggie out of me. Whoop, you know what I'm saying? Yes, we win. The Bible says Christ prevails and one little word shall indeed fail uh, the enemy. He's never early. <laughs> He's never late. He just wins. He's on time. Troubling situation. God's powerful intervention. And then finally, the Lord's invitation. Oh, I love verse 8. It says, come. Listen to these words of invitation. Come and behold Kazah is a Hebrew word, behold. It literally means to gaze, to perceive. It goes even deeper than that. It means to contemplate, to ruminate, to chew on this in your mind. Behold God's works. I like the way one writer describes the works of God, and I quote, the works here are all the acts of God in history. Oh, the exodus, the conquest, the judges, the monarchy. The recitation of the mighty acts of God plants deep in the memory of God's people the evidences of his care, his protection, and his providential rule. That is so good. Let me read that again. Listen to these words. The recitation, the memory, the going over in your mind, the mighty acts of God plants deep in the memory of God's people the evidences of his care, his protection, and his providential rule. End of quote. Thank you, Dr. Van Gamerin. That was a good word. In our moments of trial and fear, we develop what I've called spiritual amnesia. We, we forget. I, guys, look, I can walk away from this pulpit for just a minute. I forget. In, in the midst, in the crucible of the perplexity, of the depression, of me spiritually putting on my funeral guard, what am I going to do? And God says, Would you stop? Would you just stop for a moment and remember and recollect, recite the mighty acts of God? He is the God who created everything. He is the God who sustains everything. He is the omnipotent, overruling, sovereign deity, providential, awesome God who was, he is, he's in the future, he's everywhere. And so therefore, we should not fear. We should not be in trepidation. We should not Worry, because God invites us. He says, come, ruminate, recite. It's spiritually therapeutic. Do it. Just think about his goodness to you, his provisions for you in the past, and will he not take care of you today and in the future? Let me give you two more words of invitation. Be still. Wow. This Hebrew imperative literally means let it go. Let it drop, abandon, relax, forsake. Oh, I like this one. Y'all ready for, the, for about the eighth definition? Be quiet. Be still. Some of you are frenetic. Can I just say it like this? You're just freaking out. 
and you are so nervous. You fill in the blank. Your marriage, your, your children, your job, your 401K, they're probably not going to be there. And you're just going, what am I going to do? And God says, well, first of all, remember me. And second of all, just be still. Can I translate it this way? Take a nap. <laughs> I took two naps yesterday. It was awesome. I can't remember the last time I took a nap. I slept till 8 o'clock yesterday. I got up and went to Walmart for two hours. I don't recommend that on a Saturday, by the way. <laughs> but I went with my beloved wife and our small group, Discipleship Accountability. We're, we're trying to invest more in our welcome to their world. We're in their world, and I'm doing things in my wife's world. I'm having a good time. And Ashley, I love you. You're the only person in and under heaven, I'd go to Walmart with for two hours. And so we're there, and I come back, and I lay down, and I take a nap. And I'm just chilling out, and it's so wonderful. And I get up, and I look around, I'm going, okay, what is, what is, I take another nap. I did. I laid down for another 30, 45 minutes, and got up and watched some football, and then worked out, and came home, did nothing. And God says, that's okay. Mr. Workaholic, Mr. Always Doing Something, you get Mr. Busy, Busy Bee, it's okay. Would you calm down, be still, and just chill out, take a nap. I'm God, you're not. <laughs> He's God, you're not, chill, chill out. Be still and know and know. Well, that's a cow imperative. That word know means find out, perceive. Discern it in your heart. See, we, we, we say these words, but do we really mean them? Verse 10 is one of the high-water marks, isn't it, in all the Bible? Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know this. I win. I'm going to be exalted among the nations. And that's such a passion of mine. Oh, God, for your glory. I, I want you to be worshipped. That's why I evangelize. That's why I go on mission, because you are awesome and you're worthy. And, and God's like, I know I am, and it's all all right. <laughs> and I will take care of it. And here's how he ends it, his hymn. Mm, that word above all earthly pies. No thanks to them abided. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sided. Let good and kindred go. <laughs> this mortal life, oh, also, hold on, I'm getting there. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. Listen to this. God's truth abideth still. Listen to this. His kingdom is forever. Isn't that good? A mighty fortress. It's our God. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther read the end of the book and he got it right. God wins. He's sovereign. He's in control. He says, come unto me. Be still and know that I am God. I will win. I will be exalted. I will take care of you. I will preserve you. He said, oh, wait a minute, Brother Dana. I'm sick and I, I might die. Do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Then you go to heaven. Woo! You still win. You still win. It doesn't matter. 
He's still in control. He's still God. Come what may. Why don't you sing more, Brother Danny? Because my voice cracks. I can't do it, you know. That's the answer. I don't know. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, I, this is a hard time for me. You know, I, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm depressed. Brother Dan, my marriage stinks. I don't want to spend two hours with my wife anywhere, much less in Walmart. I, I, we, just, we just don't. It ain't happening. Our kids are out of control. Our bank accounts are depleted. Is this, does this for me? Does this say anything to me? Yes, it does. It's, it's like God is shouting out. Listen to this word. Thank you, Lord, for this word. God says, I would have that preacher preach that sermon if you were the only one in this sanctuary that you would know how much I love you, how much I care for you. Astronaut Wayne Hale says, you know, the older I get, it's harder for me to remember things. But I remember January 31st, 1986, as if it were yesterday. You remember 28th of January, 1986. Some of you weren't even born, but I remember where I was as a senior in college. And hearing the news that the Challenger spaceship, spacecraft, it, it, it just erupted in the atmosphere, and all seven astronauts died. They came just south of us, the, uh, the family, the mourners, thousands of them gathered at the Johnson, at the Kennedy. And they met in Houston and President Ronald Reagan, all these dignitaries and all these politicians, and Mr. Wayne Hale says, I was there. He said, I'll never forget that day. It's over in my mind over and over and over because of what my friend, fellow astronaut Charlie Bolden, did. Charlie Bolden, he said, let me tell you about Charlie. He is a Marine who happens to be an astronaut. Charlie is one of those guys that he is a straight-shooting Marine who is always direct. He's always honest, even to a fault. And Marine aviator Bolden they turned the podium, the platform, over to him during this hour of grief and travail and, and national calamity. And Mr. Bolden stood up and he said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will, and he read the 46th Psalm. This is for you. It really is for you. And if you will be still and you will trust in him today, I promise you by his presence and sometimes through his conspicuous outstretched arm at the break of dawn, he will come. He will come through. He always does. You say, Brother Danny, it may not be the way that I think. No, it probably won't be the way you think it should be. But if you know him and you say you love him and you trust him with your life, I promise you, 
he will, he will come through. Lord, I thank you today for your word. I thank you, God, that it's more than just words on a page, that God is life. And Lord, I know that there are people who watch this message on the internet, and I know there will be many who will tune us in in a couple weeks, Lord, on KVU. And, and Lord, I, my heart just bleeds and breaks for them because, Lord, so many people hurt. And I'm concerned for them, but, Lord, I'm especially concerned for these here today. But, Lord, there would be a divine exchange is my prayer today, that Jehovah, Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, God of the armies of heaven and earth, that, Lord, you would come. And that divine exchange would transpire today, that you would take the hurt, the grief, the pain, the hurt, oh God, and you would replace it with joy, with peace, with healing, forgiveness, with mercy. I thank you, Lord, for Psalm 46. I thank you, God, for a giant of a man of Martin Luther who coined these words that are forever etched in our minds, and we, we take joy and comfort from this. But Lord, during our invitation, I, I pray that we would all be still, know that you are God. We would behold your works. For some, Lord, that means coming and acknowledging you publicly and, and, and falling down at your feet at this altar and praising you and surrendering our lives to you. And for others, God, it's just right where they are. Just make an altar right where they are. And they worship you and they thank you. Lord, I pray. And old friend, would you hear me right now? I pray for you that there's never been a time in your life where you ask God to be real in you, to forgive you of your sins, to place your faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross and his resurrection. Then I invite you to do that. Would you do Romans 10, 9 with me today and just say, I confess with my mouth, Jesus, you are the Lord. I believe in my heart that God the Father raised you from the dead, and so therefore... I am saved. Would you do that today? Others of you are here today and you, you look for a, a place that you can belong, a church that you can come and serve and get involved. Man, we welcome you today. We invite you to come and be a part of us here at Great Hills. But most of all, I just reach out to you today and remind you that he is the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth is his name. And he wins. <laughs> In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? Brother Terry leads us in our song.